We're looking this morning at the subject of the joy of salvation. And the first kind of part of the, of the message deals with why we need salvation. And if you'll notice in your bulletin outline, God gave an advanced warning to our first parents concerning how they should live their lives under His creatorship. At the creation of Adam and again with his wife Eve, God laid down one rule of conduct for them and one consequence should they disobey. Here it is. The Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Genesis 2, verse 16 and 17. Now this was gracious of God. There are no surprises here. God did not keep Adam and Eve in the dark, allow them to eat of the forbidden tree, and then pounce on them in judgment. No. The terms of their existence, the perimeters of their environment, were carefully laid out. You are free to eat from any tree but one. Any tree but one. There is no deprivation here. They had plenty to eat. They had dozens of choices to provide variety and to squelch any kind of monotony. It was not like they woke up one morning and said, Oh no, bananas for breakfast again. No, they had lots of variety. The variety was copious and every kind of fruit grew in Eden's bountiful garden. It wasn't a matter of, well, citrus fruit grow in certain areas and apples in cold climate areas and peaches. And no, they had it all and more in Eden. Secondly, God not only laid down the law and set the perimeters for obeying, but He proceeded to tell our first parents the consequences should they choose to disobey. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Genesis 2, verse 16 and 17. Every good teacher knows that it's not sufficient, it is not sufficient to lay down rules of conduct for their students. They have to go on and state what will happen if you break the rules. There's consequences to our decisions in life. Again, trying to avoid all surprise. Well, you never told me that. And at the same time, providing incentives to obey because there's consequences for disobedience and they're unpleasant and sometimes very dire. The Bible puts it this way, to obey is better than sacrifice. 1 Samuel 15, verse 22. When we were growing up with our kids, we used that verse all the time. They're sitting here this morning. They can tell you that that's true. Uh, to obey mom and dad's rules is better than getting a spanking. Uh, it is better than having your privileges taken away. To obey, to obey is better than sacrifice. One thing is sure about God as creator and mankind as creature there is no ambiguity in God's law and the penalties for breaking it. He tells us clearly. The same applies 
for God's true ministers. Let me read it for you. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, writes Paul, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced, listen to this, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. 2 Corinthians 4 verses 1 through 3. And the context tells us of Satan who blinds the minds of those that are perishing. And that's why they perish. They don't perish because the message has not been clear. They perish because of their unbelief. Now, that is exactly what occurred in Eden. There is no obscure instruction from God to Adam and Eve on the proper protocol for living as creatures of God in Eden. Everything we could say was crystal clear. Crystal clear. It could, it could not have been more clear. The whole garden is yours, but one tree. If you eat of the one tree, you're in trouble. How hard is that? That's not even Ten Commandments, is it? That's just one commandment. God, as it were, painted a big red X on one tree in the middle of the garden. And in so doing, he proclaimed off limits. Off limits. This tree, this fruit, carries deadly consequences for you if you partake. Don't go there. Don't eat of this. Stay away. All you need to thrive is plentifully supplied in the dozens and dozens of other trees found all over the remaining acreage of the garden. Wonderful provision. Well, into that pristine environment, Satan, as a serpent, came to Eve and through doubts and suspicion on God's word by first asking a question. It says in the scripture, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Genesis 3. Verse 1. Now we're reading this and we know the story, so we can see after the fact what's going on here. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? When I was a kid growing up in Pennsylvania, our town had the Susquehanna River flowing through. Well, it still does have the Susquehanna River flowing through it. And we kids learned to love the water. Swimming, fishing, all the amenities of a large body. It's, by the way, a river in Pennsylvania is not like the Flint River right over here that's about this wide. This is very wide. Big river flowing through the hills of Pennsylvania. But 
There was also the danger in this river of deep water and rapid currents. Plus, not all the kids were great swimmers. Some, of them, some were poor swimmers. And it was all part of our neighborhood gang that was known as the River Rats. We basically were people, kids, that loved that river. So, my parents and those of some of the other kids laid down this rule. You are not to go to the river unsupervised by an adult. Now, is there anything ambiguous about that? No going to the river unless you have adult supervision along with you. This was a reasonable and sane rule given the possible dangers involved. But what would happen if some clever yet rebellious kid came along who didn't much care about obeying parental rules and asked the question, did your parents um, say you were not to go near the river or did they say you were not to go near the water? Let me see what's happening here. To our way of thinking, the river and the water are one and the same. But there were other bodies of water everywhere, mountain streams, creeks, lakes, and so on. The changing of the word from river to water was designed to cause us to question the exact nature of the rule. I mean, if the word is river, if that was used, that's plain enough. There's only one river in town. But if mom and dad had used the word water, likely they didn't mean the river. Because no one ever said, let's go to the water to swim. It was always, let's go to the river. This was Satan to Eve. Did God really say? And you know what? It worked. Satan dangled the bait in front of Eve and she bit. She answers, but God did say, well, you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. Genesis 3, verse 3. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Where did this business of do not touch it come from? It's not in the original prohibition. What's going on here? Eve is extrapolating. She's drawing conclusions from her own thinking and all because Satan has caused her, now get it, to cause her to doubt her own understanding of the prohibition. Did he really say that? And so she's thinking, no, well, what did he really say? And observe that as soon as Satan noticed that Eve had taken the bait, he set the hook with a bold, direct yank of the fishing line. You will not surely die. That's what he said to her. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Genesis 3, verse 4 and 5. It's the question. Did God say, stay away from the river? Or from the water? Answer, well, I think it must have been water. Oh, good. Then the river is fair game. That's the best place for swimming around here anyway. The creek is too shallow. 
And Eve was thinking, If the fruit from the midst of the garden will make me be like God, then that's good. God cannot die. Surely you will not die. All that remained for Eve was to eat of the fruit which she did. And we read in the text, she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate too. Genesis 3, verse 6. The clear command of God was twisted, tweaked, diluted, to the point that our first parents ended up believing Satan's spin on things. And Paul states the consequences. Sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way... Death came to all men because all sinned. Romans 5 verse 12. What happened? God's curse happened. That's what happened. God's advanced warning came true. That put the race and does put the race in a terrible dilemma. Now in addition to this advanced warning and then the sin that took place with regard to it, We've got God in Genesis coming in and granting an advanced promise of redemption. It appears, does it not, that Satan pulled off a tremendous coup that day in Eden. With but a well-phrased question, he created enough uncertainty in Eve to question God and enough faith in his own words to get her to disobey what God had clearly prohibited. Paul words it this way, For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. 1 Timothy 2, verse 13 and 14. Now that does not exonerate Adam. It only means that Eve was tricked into sinning, whereas Adam sinned with his eyes wide open. But a sinner by default or a sinner on purpose is still a sinner doomed to death and destruction. Now at this point some might ask the question, well, out of love, God's love, we know God is love, out of love couldn't God just change His mind about the penalty? In the day you eat of this tree, you will surely die. Couldn't he reconsider? Brethren, God cannot change his mind. You'll say, well, wait a minute, Pastor. Did I hear you right? Did you just couple the concept of cannot with God? God cannot change? I thought... God can do anything He wants. I mean, isn't that part of being God? Well, the basic truth here is that all people, including God, can only act on the basis of their nature. case of people, what he or she is internally. And that, for us, includes things like our upbringing, our education, our disposition, etc., etc. Sometimes we will hear someone make a statement about another person that goes something like this. Henry was fired today because he told off the boss to his face. 
I couldn't believe it. I mean, he, he got all red in the face. He was shouting, he was waving his hands. This was so out of character for Henry. Really? Obviously not. Henry may have generally been known as one that came across to others as being mild-mannered employee with, who normally just did his work quietly and without fanfare. But then no one was pushing his buttons to see how he would react in a situation wherein the boss was on his case for something he didn't do. And when the new occasion arose, Henry simply showed another side of his nature, one this time that cost him his job. We all operate on the basis of our nature. Well, you know, God has a nature too. But it is not a nature patterned after creatures like man. Rather, it is a nature that in many ways is contrasted to man's nature. For example, Paul, in contrasting us with Jesus Christ, God's Son, states this. If we, if we are faithless, He, Jesus, will remain faithful for, here's the reason, He cannot disown Himself. 2 Timothy 2, verse 13. You say, well, can't man be faithful? Well, absolutely. Especially the believer whose new nature is patterned after Christ. But because of sin, we can also be unfaithful. Even as Paul says, we can be faithless at times. But that label can never be attached to God because God's nature is not subject to change. Changelessness is part and parcel to God because He is perfect. To be subject to change, that's us, is to admit not being perfect. Why do you change your mind? Because you got new information that's come your way? We do not know everything there is to know, so we often change our minds. By the way, think about that and remember that with regard to scientists and their theories, with regard to origins especially. We change our mind because of new information that is discovered. We change our plans because something arises providentially that alters our decisions. We change in physical health. We can't do all that we did when we were younger. We change in understanding and knowledge because we are ever learning and sometimes we have to unlearn wrong concepts. We are always changing as creatures. But none of this can be said of God. He never goes through any kind of metamorphosis or change. Instead, His nature is eternally fixed because He is perfect. He is perfect. He cannot, Paul says, disown himself. Of Jesus, the author of Hebrews writes, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 13, verse 8. Note the time references. Yesterday, that's the past. Today, that's the present. Forever, that's the future. 
and beyond. And the author writes, same, same, same as Jesus Christ, God's Son. And brethren, let me say that it is this sameness, the sameness that makes God's Word, the Bible, the only reliable source of information to find God and to learn of Him. Because God cannot change any threat we discover. You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. Genesis 2 verse 16. That will come to pass if and when the conditions are met to breach God's rule. And Adam and Eve broke the rule. And no, God could not change His mind about the penalty. That was all part of the rule. Now, as we think a little deeply about this, we would might say, well, then Adam and all of his posterity are doomed. We are. Adam the sinner passed on his sinful nature to us, and if we are sinners by nature, and we are, then there is nothing we can do to undo the legacy that Adam left us. Thank you very much, Mr. Adam. And what is more, God's judgment of death remains. Do we not read in the New Testament, the wages of sin is death. So the curse is still there. Romans 6 verse 23. Because God cannot change His mind and ignore the penalty. And I don't know about you, Pastor, but that sounds pretty hopeless to me. Well, it does sound hopeless. <laughs> but it isn't. It is not hopeless because along with God's advance warning of what would happen if Adam and Eve disobeyed His one rule of eating from the forbidden tree, God went on to give an advance promise of redemption. You'll find it in Genesis 3, verse 15, spoken to the lying serpent who assumed he had won a great coup in causing Adam and Eve to sin. Here's what God says. I will put enmity, I'll put hatred between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He, the offspring of the woman, will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Genesis 3 verse 15. You think you won. Guess what? You lost. There is coming an offspring of the woman who has heavy boots. And when he lays those boots on your head, it'll be the end of you. The he referred to is none other than the special seed of the woman of whom Paul writes, But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. And because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. The Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So, you are no longer a slave, that is to sin, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. Galatians 4, 4-7. through There is the promised redemption. You say, well, I don't get it. It certainly sounds like God changed his mind to me. <laughs> in Adam, men die. But now we are told about God as Redeemer who apparently mitigates the death penalty 
That sounds to me like God changed his mind. Let me give you an illustration from history that might help uh, with this seeming dilemma. In the days of Esther, under the rule of the Persian Empire, there was a wicked Agagite named Haman. Agag was the king of the Amalekites, the foul enemies of God. And Haman was a descendant of that king. Haman hated the Jews and plotted successfully, successfully, to get King Xerxes to sign this edict. Here's it was. Dispatches were sent out by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, annihilate all the Jews, young, old, women, little children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. Esther 3, verse 13. Whew, wow. Now Haman was the author of this edict, but it was signed with the king's signet ring, and that done, the law could not be changed or revoked, according to Esther 8, verse 8. Or if you want to read it in about another king, Daniel 6 and verse 12, that's how he ended up in the lion's den. Because the king, when he found out he'd been tricked by his wise men, knew he could not revoke his own edict. That was a stupid rule for uh, men, because men make mistakes all the time, and they ought to be able to repeal legislation that has proved to be ruinous or harmful in nature. But how did King Xerxes keep Esther then and her people from annihilation? The rule went out. Thirteenth day, month Adar, wow, there's going to be a bloodbath in the Persian Empire. Here's how he did it. He says to Esther, Now write another decree in the king's name on behalf of the Jews, as seems best to you, and seal it with the king's signet ring, for no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. Esther 8, verse 8. Haman's edict, signed with the king's signet ring, doomed every Jew to death, in the Persian Empire, from India to Cush. You think about Cush's in Egypt. So from India to Egypt. 127 provinces in all. One man's sin, Haman's, put the death curse on all. And Esther, through Mordecai, her cousin, issued a new edict saying basically that the Jews had a right to arm themselves, and not only to arm themselves, but to defend themselves on the day Haman's edict went into effect. And it was a tremendous victory for the Jews. The slaughter didn't turn out the way Haman had anticipated. This feast is called the Feast of the Festival of Purim. Purim after the lot that was cast to find out a day. Haman wanted the best day to kill people. So he had the wizards throw the, the dice. And they came up with the furthest day away from that time, which gave Esther and her people time to intervene. That's celebrated in late winter, early spring. It's coming up in March of 2013. Every year along about that time, the Jews celebrate, uh, celebrate the festival of Purim to remember this occasion.
Now back to Genesis and Adam's curse and the penalty for sin. Like King Xerxes, but for more noble reasons, namely that God, because He is perfect, can not change His mind, He did something to negate the curse of death. He did not say to Adam's posterity, well, defend yourself, save yourself. That could never be, because as we have seen, we are by nature, by nature, objects of God's wrath. Ephesians 2 and verse 3. And so God did something better. He sent a champion, a redeemer, who would go to war for us in our place and take our death and take our hell personally. He would bear our sin and die our death on a cross in fulfillment of God's advanced promise of redemption. And this too is an edict that cannot be repealed or revoked. The promises of God are not subject to being revoked. Well, that's how it worked out. You have the curse taking place, but you have God stepping in and saying, I will do something about that, just as Esther stepped in on the edict of King Xerxes. That brings us then to the subject of the recipients of joy and salvation. And you'll notice in your outline, it is a spiritual people with a new nature. I want you to think about this. What good is it to have God send a Redeemer, which He did do, but what good is that if we, by our sinful nature, cannot respond aright to His victory? Paul painted the dilemma in these words. He says this, We preach Christ crucified. That's our message. This is what we preach. We talk about the Redeemer and the redemptive price, which is the cross, His own death. We preach Christ crucified. But a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. 1 Corinthians 1.23 That's what we preach, but here's the result. It causes the Jews to stumble. It causes the Gentiles to laugh. Either way, the hearers are not capable to respond aright to the good news of the gospel. It trips them up, the case of the Jews. They can't see how one dying on a cross means redemption for the masses, or it's just utter folly to them to fathom that the death of one man can produce life for many. This is not simply a stretch of faith. It's impossible to believe. And this is absolutely accurate. The good news of the gospel is not good news to the man on the street. He has no capacity to appreciate its message, no ability to apply its principles, no want to, no energy, no disposition towards acceptance, no appreciation for mercy, no love of God, no attraction to Jesus Christ. Negativity? Yeah, he has. He's got a lot of that. But positive influence? No. Believing God's promise like believing His advance warning concerning sin is vital to a restored and forgiven relationship with God. But unbelief is part of our fallen nature. It is Adam's sin all over again with this distinction. Adam had a choice, believe or not believe. We do not. 
We are unbelievers by nature and God will never be important to us on our own. Doesn't that explain a lot in terms of why your relatives aren't Christians, haven't come to Christ when you have? And so Jesus sent as Redeemer is no help to us because Satan's or the serpent's deception is more feasible to the way we think. Listen to Jesus' words or John's description thereof. Even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in Him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and he spoke about him. John 12, 37 through 41. You see what has happened here. The would not believe is explained by the could not believe. They would not because they could not. God could supply the best solution to the curse of death, and he has. But if people will not believe him and apply his solution, that solution being Jesus, then it becomes a moot point. His promise is linked to faith. The Father has sent me, has himself testified concerning me, says Jesus. You have never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You see what's going on. You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. John 5, verse 37 through 40. Jesus is saying, you know, it's not like God's left you in the dark. He's shined this tremendous light of information on you. It's like an oasis in the desert heat. Refreshing, life-saving water is pooled there. But if men see it only as a mirage, if they do not act upon it as being real, then they will die of thirst just steps away from recovery. So what's the answer? The answer is God's electing grace. That's the answer. As surely as the curse of sin has fallen on all mankind, the promise of life and victory falls on all who repent and trust God as Redeemer. Paul writes it this way, The gift of God is not like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one's sin and brought condemnation. That's true. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought Justification, that is salvation, for 
If by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Romans 5, verse 16 and 17. What he is saying is that Adam's one sin sentenced the race to judgment and condemnation, whereas those who receive God's grace and His gift of righteousness obtain eternal life through Jesus Christ. Say, well, what's the point? Those in Adam were all judged and condemned. Who are they? Every last man, woman, and child in Adam's progeny, which means we all trace our ancestry back to the first parents. Those in Christ, that is those represented by Christ, receive the gift of righteousness, the gift of eternal life. Who are they? John answers, yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, not of a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. John 1, verse 12 and 13. There's a birthing process that's taking place in order for people to respond aright to the good news of the gospel. Who are those born of God? Well, whether we're talking about the physical or the spiritual, no one can conceive and then birth themselves. It's not going to happen. Last week we heard David say to God, You created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Psalm 139 verse 13. So God and God alone gave physical substance to David's body from embryo to birth. And likewise when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus about spiritual birth, he said this, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again, literally born from above. John 3, verse 3. And so Nicodemus postulated this question. How, how can a man be born when he's old? Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. John 3, verse 4. You can tell by his question that Nicodemus was thinking of birth in but one dimension, the physical. So Jesus gave this correction. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at me saying, you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases. You hear its sound. You cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone Born of the Spirit. John 3, verse 6 through 8. Observe in both scenarios, physical birth and spiritual, no one conceives him or herself. We are the products of the actions of our parents or in spiritual birth, the actions of God and both are unpredictable. Just as the wind blows where it wants to, so God's Spirit 
breathes into dead souls his life as he sees fit, when and where he sees fit, and it is God's choice, and many, not a few, but many are the recipients, but it's of God's doing. You might ask, well, what's the proof of spiritual life? The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near. This is Jesus speaking. The time has come, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Mark 1, verse 15. Or again, Jesus says, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. Luke 11, verse 13. Repentance and faith are both the gifts of God to His chosen people. Therefore God again set a certain day, calling it today. When a long time later He spoke through David, as was said before, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. Hebrews 4, verse 7. Simply stated, don't miss out on God's promised new nature and the repentance and faith that characterizes it because of a failure on your part to respond aright to God's voice of conviction and calling. Let me put it this way. God doesn't prod everyone. See, what do you mean by that? I mean that God leaves some, many, in fact, wicked to their own wickedness. That's the way they want to live. So he says, okay, hands off. Live the way you want to live. And suffer the consequences. Read it in Romans 1. When they would not retain God in their knowledge, God said, okay, hands off. Have at it. Also have the consequences. So if you hear the voice of God prodding you, that's great. That's good. Don't do this. Da 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 da. I've seen little kids do that when they don't want to hear what their brother or sister is saying. Drown out, drown out the voice. Drown out. You don't want to drown out the voice of God because He doesn't prod everyone. His decree is this, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. John 3, verse 36. You say, what's that mean? It means you're already under the wrath of God if you're not a Christian. You're already there. And you're going to stay there if you re continue to reject the Son. God prods you that you might come. He's, that's His means of drawing you. The Spirit of God is saying, come to an end of yourself, that's repentance. Come to Christ, that's faith. And I'll give you both of these things. I'll give you the repentance. I'll give you the faith. You need this new nature in order to respond right to the gospel, to the Redeemer. Soul of grace, folks. 
It's all of grace. Haven't we asked as Christians, Lord, why me? The sea of sinful humanity, the sea of lost humanity, why me? Why adopt me? Why grab me? Why translate me from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of your dear son, as this sign says behind me? Why me? The only answer for that is, I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And I will harden whom I harden. And you have no say in it unless it comes to praising me for what I have done. Oh, and incidentally, if a person happens to be one of those that God has hardened, The scripture says, even the wrath of man will praise me. Even if you are in my face with your fist, if you stay that way all the way to hell, even that will praise me. Say, I don't get it. How's that praise God? It praises his justice and his righteousness and his holiness, all of which are bent on punishing that which is an evil resistance against a good and gracious and loving Savior. People like that deserve what they get. Grace is what? Me not getting what I deserve. Which is it going to be for you this morning? Which do you want? Well, if God were, no, if God gives you what you deserve, hell's flames are going to lap at your door for all of eternity. I don't want what I deserve. I want grace. I want mercy. Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. That's what I want. And he can be that to us because, along with the curse, he has promised a Redeemer and wonder of wonders. That Redeemer has come. Our Lord, we ask and pray your blessing upon your word this morning. Show us the truth of the gospel. Now, we don't love the gospel apart from your work in our hearts. We don't believe and repent and then get saved. We are made anew in Christ's spirit and then we believe and repent and the gospel is applied to us. No one is ever saved apart from repentance and faith, but our sinful nature doesn't love God and doesn't love the gospel. So you've got to change us first. And I pray that you'll do that. And Lord, if there's any here this morning that are just hoping that uh, they'll get what they deserve or what they've earned or whatever adjective they want to put to their activities, I pray that you'll show them that they are bankrupt when it comes before God. There is nothing they can contribute, not even the keeping of His commandments, which no one does, 
can't even say, well, I keep the Ten Commandments because we don't keep them perfectly all the time and God will settle for nothing other than perfection. That's why we need His perfect Son doing for us what we could not, cannot do for ourselves. I pray, Lord, that You'll help us to just see our total bankruptcy this morning and how indeed we need to praise Your grace and Your mercy. What a joy to be saved. Well, we can't take any credit for it for ourselves, nor should we. But we can worship at your feet, and I pray that we will. In the hour to come, as we gather around your table, we remember what it costs God to redeem us. Amen.